0: taking it
2: to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at show. My name is Kay Winnegal and I'm joined today by my co-host Natalie Bucknell and Michael Steindall. Hi Kay. Hi Kay. Hello all. Hope you're enjoying this. We can all see that our weather patterns are changing in Australia. To get a better understanding of the impact of this, today we're going to be speaking to Fiona Johnson, who is a senior lecturer at the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering in the University of New South Wales. Her research is in the area of climate change impact on water resource systems, in particular developing methods to bias correct general circulation models, simulations and improve their representation of statistics important to engineering design. Hi, Fiona. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kay. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Now, Fiona, can you tell us what your main research areas are?
1: So uh, my main research areas are, as an engineer, thinking about how we can design our cities and other infrastructure to to cope with climate change, so adapting to the changes that we're likely to see in in our weather but also in our our overall climate statistics. And to do this, I take the outputs from um, computer models that are called the general circulation models that you you mentioned before, or or global climate models, it's an easier way of saying that, um, that essentially give us ideas of what might happen in the future. And I... Work out how they can, how those model results can be best used in engineering.
2: Okay, so three points just sprang to mind as, as you were talking. Um, firstly, the general circulation model is also called a global climate model. That's an inter, interchangeable term.
1: Kind of. I mean, you know. So I guess as, as these are these are com- computer models that have been around since. Well, uh, the late 1960s, early 1970s, and as computing power has increased, these these models have become increasingly sophisticated, um, and so we might even call them Earth system models nowadays because we're modelling more than just the climate. We're modelling carbon in you know in in vegetation. We're modelling you know the the hydrologic cycle. We're modelling a whole lot of chemistry in the atmosphere. So they're very sophisticated models of how we think that the Earth operates, um, but Often they're called GCMs and and technically they're general circulation models, but global climate model also is GCM and so that that tends to
2: be a shorthand word as well. It is. I like that. I'll I'll stick with the global climate model. (laughs) It's a little easier to say. (laughs) So the two main areas that you're looking at is floods and drought. Yes. Um, Let's talk about flooding effects first. Can you tell us and our listeners what the main issues are with flooding
1: well, I mean, I guess as a water engineer, we, we're worried about too much water and too little water, hence why we sort of look at, at floods and um, droughts. And Australia's, you know, we know that we have these these cycles of, you know, where we tend to get very wet periods and then we tend to get very dry periods. If, if everything was very even, our life as a water engineer would be quite simple. Um, and so when we're thinking about floods, what we're really trying to prevent is damage to property, damage to infrastructure, and, and most importantly, you know, injuries and deaths in, in people because far too many people still die in floods. Um, and so, you know, as engineers, we try to design infrastructure that that helps to prevent that, make sure that when when it does rain, you know, very heavily, that we know where that water will go and that, that those flows are you know, not too deep and not too fast and that we can get, I guess separate people and cars from, from dangerous flows. Now, when it comes to climate change, we know that rainfall intensities will increase. And, and this is something we've known you know, for hundreds of years, really. We know that the um, atmosphere holds moisture and, and warmer temperatures mean that you can hold more moisture. And this is why, you know, when you go to the tropics, it feels more humid, more sticky than it does in a somewhere cooler, you know, because they can, you can just hold so much more moisture in the atmosphere. So as we, as we see warming due to you know, carbon emissions in, in, the at, in the atmosphere, we know that there'll be more moisture in the atmosphere or the capability to hold more moisture in the atmosphere. And so then when it rains, it, that rain can be heavier. And therefore, we think that flooding, particularly in urban areas, is, is likely to be much worse. Um, and urban areas are a problem because, you know, we've got all this concrete everywhere. So when it rains, that... That, that water can't go into the ground like it can in your in a natural catchment. It it runs off and it, it concentrates and it and it flows quite quickly. And so therefore we we have, you know, increased risk of flooding with climate change.
0: And I, I like the point Fiona and Michael here um, that you made um, that flooding actually involves more than the. Well, I think we're used to thinking about it as ordinary citizens. It's every single um, construction, whether it's just a, a road culvert, a, a, a drain, a house, a major building. Um, it all has to cope with the worst case, um, and even the things happening to the dam, dams in um, California recently. Uh, a major cost was, was coping with the the overflow, the flood of that plane and that yeah. uh, dam. Um, what sort of tools are you developing to predict these events, Fiona?
1: Well, so what we – because because flooding, I guess by its very nature, it is quite rare. I mean, we're thinking about events that might occur on average sort of one in 10 years or one in 100 years. So these are the sorts of events that we design for. So we're not – I mean, we obviously care about you know, the rain that occurs every – every couple of years or something like that but the ones that really worry us and you know keep us awake at night are the ones that are that are quite rare and so by their nature we don't we haven't seen a lot of them and so we do a lot of statistical analysis to try to to understand how big they might be and what the uncertainties associated with those estimates might be now when it comes to the climate change question we use multiple lines of evidence to try to work out what might happen in the future. So we've got some simple relationships that suggest that for every degree temperature increase we see, we we probably will see 7% more moisture in the atmosphere. This is the classic clapeyron equation, it's it's, it's Mm -hmm. 100 years old. And um, we then are looking at these global climate models um, and seeing whether they do well in sort of representing that physical relationship that we know. Because the because you're trying to run these models over the whole world, that takes a lot of computer power, like yep. supercomputers. We've only got about twenty or thirty around the world, you know, centers where these models are run because it requires so much computing power. Um, which means that you're when you divide the world up into sort of small grids to try to represent it, those grids actually end up being quite large, about a hundred kilometers sort of squares, and so you can kind of picture that you know, the weather patterns within 100 kilometres can be very, very different. So to answer what might happen with flooding, some people, you know, in our Climate Change Research Centre here at UNSW run very, very fine scale models that are like the global climate models but just uh, act over a smaller area. And so they might run down to sort of two kilometres. And so what my work does is take simulations from those very fine um, resolution models and we look at, you know how well they represent the statistics of you know that we've seen in the past of rainfalls, and then we look at what what happens in the future. so so my work is a lot of statistical and math sort of processing of of these model simulations that other climate scientists around the world are doing.
3: So Fiona, one of the things that we understand that you're using in the models is the relationship between soil wetness and storm rainfall, and that that can determine the amount of flooding and runoff. But your research is showing that these simple models will need to be replaced with longer-term simulations that model all of the previous rainfall leading up to the storm. Why is that now necessary, or is it just that you've built up a better model than we previously used?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is one of the things that I mean, increasing computer power over the last fifty years has really helped us. So. What engineers did you know, fifty years ago to assess flooding were, were simple hand calculations, essentially, or, or very simple computer models. And so we made some, you know, some some big assumptions about what the important, the most important processes were in terms of flooding. And so we said, okay, well, what we really need to think about is the the period where it's actually raining, um, and then depending on what surface that that rain is falling on, whether it's grass or you know. Vegetation or you know concrete, we might we need to take off some losses because maybe not all of the rainfall will end up you know causing a flood, and so these these methods have served us very well. I mean, you you and your listeners know that you know we're not there's not that many times where people have to deal with flooding in their real lives. You know we can take from this that, that the methods that have been used by you know local government authorities and, and councils and engineers have worked have served us pretty well, but one of the big questions is. Um, if we get more intense rainfall in the future, but the rest of the time our rainfall is smaller, so it's overall drier, but when it rains it's much, much heavier so that we've got more variability from the wet days to the dry days. Sort of, um, When it rains, does, is the catchment going to be able to absorb more rainfall or is it going to still run off in the same way that it has in the past? Now, if you've got just a very simple model that only models the storm itself, you don't really have the capability to think about that catchment behaviour before the storm. And so what we're progressively moving to is trying to model long sequences. So modelling you know, 10 minutes of rainfall for every, you know, every 10 minutes for, for 10 years or 20 years. Hmm. Clearly, this requires a lot more data. It requires a lot more computing power. But it does give us a chance to understand that interplay between what's happening in the catchment prior to the rainfall event and what's happening during the rainfall event itself. But this is still kind of in the research realm. It, it does get used in parts of engineering, but not, not flooding more water quality kind of questions about you know runoff and, and sediments and things like that. But in terms of flooding, we've still got a little way to go to think about the best ways to do this in a... Computationally efficient way because a lot of these studies get done for local government authorities and and you know they don't. It, it comes down to time and money often that you know, people want need answers quicker than the computing power and the technology is currently letting us. So this mm. is still, you know, a very active area of research.
3: You're right on the cutting edge there. That's great.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs>
0: um, just as a bit of an aside on that one, both. In what you said about the um, computation of the global model, models and what you're doing, I know with the global ones there's a couple of people like Berkeley that are harnessing um, home computing power um, by dishing out little packets of work and getting uh, much more computing power that mm-hmm. way. Um, is that a possibility for your project to be able to do that?
1: Uh, these, uh, I love the creativity that people are thinking, oh, there's computers like not being used that are on, we should send stuff out. Those sorts of solutions... Um, work really well with certain types of problems um, where you're kind of thinking about. I'm trying to think of a simple example. Say you wanted to run a model and you didn't know whether you know a, a parameter in the model should be you know ten or twenty. Mm. So you could send one version of the model out to, to one home computer and you put the, the, ver- the, the number in at 10 and you put it out to another computer and you put the version in at 10, 20 and you bring that back in. And that's what we've seen some really nice work around the world doing with some climate models is essentially trying out different parameters.
0: And, and checking their matching to the past.
1: Um, yeah, or understanding the uncertainty or understanding the sensitivity to the model to these mm. parameters. So it kind of gives you a great feeling for, for which ones might be the more important you know, so then you can go out and do further studies of, or to constrain those parameters. But um, in the case of kind of continuous simulation, um, where we're thinking about modelling the rainfall every ten minutes for ten years, each time step is dependent on the time step before. So you can't kind of send it out to different computers; that it, it needs to happen sequentially. So, there's, so there's some sorts of problems where what we call parallel, you know. Uh, calculations where you can send it to different computers works really, really well. And then some others where it doesn't solve our problems necessarily and you just need lots of computing power in one place. Okay.
3: Fair enough. So, Fiona, going back to flooding, the flooding issue, um, apparently costs of flooding have really been increasing over recent years. What What is that due to? Well,
1: this is one of the, I guess, still interesting research questions because we know that we've got... More, you know, uh, around the world costs of flooding have been increasing and, and Australia's you know, the case in that too. But we've got more insured um, properties. We've got, you know, different insurance schemes that mean that people are protected. We've got, you know, more expensive infrastructure. And so this is one of the things that I guess we're trying to work out is do those costs of flooding mean that the number of floods have been going up, or does it mean that the mat- that when a flood occurs, it's worse and therefore it causes flooding, or is it just because we've got more people being exposed to, to the floods that are the same as always? And so,
3: and what what's your research indicating so far on that?
1: It's a really mixed picture, and one of the hard bits is, as I said before, a lot of this research requires us to be looking at very rare statistics by by its very definition and so those time series when we look at those are are quite noisy, they, they jump around from year to year and so understanding those trends requires quite a lot of statistics and so the work that's been done in Australia actually suggests that in some locations increases the increases or the flood occurrence has been decreasing but again it's hard because we've got you know, ten year periods where we had no no floods, for example, during the millennium drought. And so that those sorts of periods when we've only got thirty or forty years of data tend to really influence your statistical analysis. So I think the jury's still out. The the key message though, I think, is that in urban areas these these effects are much less well, the uncertainty is much smaller. We know that we'll have increased flooding. So traditionally where we have flood gauges tends to be in rural areas on big on big rivers um, and and that that's where it's still more unclear of the, of that interplay between the catchment conditions and the rainfall intensity in urban areas though where you know the vast majority of people live is much clearer the losses are small the catchment conditions may matter you know don't matter as much and therefore increased rainfall intensities will cause increased flooding
2: For those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Climate Solutions show and we're talking to Fiona Johnson from the University of New South Wales about a flood and drought research and modelling of that in Australia. So, Fiona, can you give us any idea of what the impacts of climate change have already had on Australia's rainfall pattern?
1: Um, We've seen increases in extreme rainfalls in some parts of Australia, you know, trends, um, particularly if you divide it up by seasons. So we tend to see increases in the summer in, you know, say thunderstorm kind of rainfalls. Um, In other parts of Australia, say in southwest Western Australia, we've seen quite significant decreases in annual rainfall, and this is fairly consistent with what we expect from climate models. We think that it's because of shifting Um, weather patterns, they kind of are coming across the ocean and and are ending up a little bit further south than they used to and they really miss southwest Western Australia. Um, In sort of, I guess, Queensland and those sorts of areas, the signals aren't yet clear and and the models that we see for, for what might happen in the future also don't all necessarily agree in terms of, say, what the... Average change to rainfall will be and that that suggests to us that those changes to rainfall are probably going to be within sorts of the natural variability that we tend to see which is actually the bigger driver of what we of of how we design our water systems anyway in Australia.
2: So with regard to the drought effects what I think particularly in New South Wales which is where your main research is what what effects are you finding there?
1: Well, this is, I mean, I guess this is the research problem that we're currently working on. So this is a project with the New South Wales Government um, uh, Department of Primary Primary Industries uh, and their water sort of um, division, so DPI Water, is um, funding, along with the Australian Research Council, some work that we're doing looking at um, developing methods to think about how likely droughts will be in the future. Because... Some of the work that's been done previously has just taken long-term historical sequences of, you know, what we've seen in terms of rainfall um, in the past, so what we measured at a rainfall gauge, and then maybe scaled that by, you know, decreasing it by 10% or increasing it by 10%, and then we run those new sequences through um, our water model. The problem with that is that it doesn't really allow for us to have these changes to variability that mean that we might get, you know, two or three years that are wet followed by three or four years that are dry. If in the future we only have one or two years that are wet followed by five or six years that are dry, we need to be able to explore those changes in variability because most of our water resources and and dams in, in most of Australia are designed to store water for multiple years. And this is different from other parts of the world. So in parts of the world where it snows every winter, you know that every spring that snow will melt and your dams will fill up. Well, in Australia, it, it doesn't... You know, we don't We don't have a lot of snow, and so generally our, our water resources systems and our dams are designed to get us through multiple years of drought. But the question is, if they've been designed for, say, a worse drought that might last five or six years, well, what happens in the future if we get a 10-year drought or a 20-year drought? Um, and these are you know, within the realms of possibility, what we're seeing in research that's coming out of the US is, is these ideas of mega droughts that last for 50 years or 100 years that we've seen in in the long term, in the last, you know, couple of thousand years when we look at um, uh, very long-term records from tree rings or other paleo climate data. Um, and so we're not looking at that specifically in New South Wales, but we're trying to come up with methodologies that can at least help us explore these, these variabilities.
2: So... It- how well is drought really understood in Australia? Um,
1: it's c- kind of poorly understood, really. Um, and, and part of that again is, is is the the fact that it's fairly rare. The other part is that it, it's drought is really complicated. It has it has a weather element in terms of you know, did it rain or not, and and how did that rain? How was that rain distributed over over periods of years? It has a land management. Um, element in terms of, you know, how are people storing water, using water in agriculture and things like that. We've got sort of an understanding of the soils. We've got the influence of temperature. So one of the still open questions is do we get higher temperatures during drought because of the drought or does the drought cause the higher temperatures? And it's sort of a bit of a chicken and egg question but we can't Necessarily, always say which way that that causation or that that relationship goes, and so all of these things mean that every time a drought occurs, all of these are slightly different, and we you know we've only seen sort of four or five droughts in the last hundred years, so it gives us quite a small sample to be able to you know really try to understand. Um, but there's I mean there's plenty of scientists and engineers trying to work on this problem. We do know a lot about the variability and the reasons why we tend to get periods of wet weather, you know, wet years followed by dry years, at least in the historical climate. But the question then is, well, how how might that change in the future? So here I'm thinking about things like the El Nino and the La Nina that you might hear about causing, you know, La Nina tends to cause floods in Australia and El Nino tends to cause droughts.
2: But you just said that um, droughts happen over a longer period of time and there's been very few of them but there've been quite a few el nino and la nina effects in recent times that i've been reading about is that because it's just become a more a better understood or a more popular term
1: um there could be that uh you know the, it might be a more popular term i mean we we know we've got a pretty good understanding of how how many el ninos and la ninas there's been in the last 100 years um, from instrumental records and they tend to occur once every two two to 5 years on average so we've sort of got this this cycle where we kind of go from an El Niño to a La Niña and back through these neutral conditions, and they they tend to to swap around every two to five years. One of the things that's probably um, slightly less understood is that we we un, we think that these these cycles that two to five years can be affected by some cycles that occur over decades, um, called the interdecadal Pacific Oscillation, and that these can tend to make some El Niño is really bad, and some La Niña is really bad, and and sometimes it can also help to to make them not quite so severe. And so we've sort of got interplays from all these different um, large-scale climate circulation patterns. That again, just because you know if they last for ten to thirty years in the instrumental records, when you know we really only have good data from you know, the the best data is from about the 1960s, but we've got reasonably good data from around 1900 for most of the world, Um, it it makes it hard to to analyse these.
2: Mm -hmm. So what sort of measures can we take to mitigate, mitigate these effects?
1: So, I mean, I guess one of the things that we're looking at is sort of robust design. So, you know, designs that can be adapted over time, Underst- uh, understanding the uncertainty in our in our understanding, I guess, and and putting that uncertainty into the systems to see where we get, you know, big changes, and and if we, you know, if for example we project that a ten percent decrease in rainfall, okay, we can handle that, but at twenty percent, that's that's a big problem. Then we can start to look at well, how do we how do we deal with that? How likely is it? So it's it's really, I guess moving more and more towards a risk-based um, system of, of where we really isolate the uncertainties and, and design in a way that means that, you know, we, we can deal with those risks, I guess, and, and quantify them properly and communicate them well as well.
2: Okay. Well, Fiona, we've just um, run out of time. Perfect timing. Thank you so much for all the information you've given us today.
1: No worries. Thanks for having
2: me. Is there any way that our listeners can find out more information?
1: You could have a look at the UNSW website or the National Centre for Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility is also um, pretty useful. I'm not sure if you've got a website. I could send you a couple of links for if listeners are interested in following up.
2: Yes, definitely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Fiona. Okay, thank
1: you.
2: The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you enjoy this show and would like to donate, just go to our website and click on the Donate button. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others that we have done, you go to w www... <laughs> B- and click on Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope to catch you again next week.
1: It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge.
2: A regenerative suspension.
1: There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time Innovation in the financing
0: space. The high-speed train is in all our interests.
1: All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that.
0: You've got something that's transformational.
1: Solar window in a can.
0: Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.